Now, from growing up in church, I can remember when we found out that the Sunday sermon was going to come from a seminary professor, and we had two thoughts. The first was, it's going to be long. <laughs> the second was, it's going to be complicated. And so I want you to know at the outset that I have committed myself this morning to push back against both of those tendencies. It's my pleasure to be here. I've been at Duke Divinity School for about 20 years now, and it's been a wonderful place to be, great colleagues, great students. Uh, it's a great place to work, and the work is good. Uh, it is remarkable to me that somebody pays me to study scripture and think about God and how fortunate I am uh, to have that kind of life. Well, I heard a story once about a woman who was cooking a roast. And her daughter came in the kitchen and said, Mom, when you cook a roast, why do you cut both ends off the roast? And her mother said, I don't know. I've just always done that. And she got curious and she called her mother and she said, Mama, why did you always cut both ends off the roast before you cooked it? She said, oh, honey, when your father and I were first married, we lived in a really small apartment. There was a tiny oven. That's the only way the roast would fit. I guess it just became something of a habit. In the 1990s, I spent a couple years in Germany, and it was a very interesting time to be in Germany. You may recall that the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. The wall, of course, separated cities and families. It had gone up in 1961. And so for almost 30 years, the wall had stood there. And if you tried to cross without a visa, you'd be shot. And after the wall came down, there were a lot of really urgent questions that were being faced by people in this new situation. Where should our combined capital be? Where are we going to find the money? Where are we going to find the money for all of the deferred public works projects that have gone on for years? More fundamentally, how are we going to honor the heritage, the experience, the traditions of people in the West and the East, which have been so different and at the same time, find some way to bring them together, to integrate them. How do we do that? I had lots of conversations with people about these questions and these challenges. But at the same time, people told me that actually the biggest challenge wasn't political or financial or historical, the biggest challenge was what people referred to as the wall 
in your head. The wall had come down. The wall no longer stood. The wall was not physically there anymore. And yet, people still thought about it as if it was real. The wall still made a difference. It was a part of the way they conceived of reality. It was the way they interpreted their reality. It gave them a map for how they thought about things, how they faced questions, how they began to think about the future. The wall was still in their head. Now this summer, you're working through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. God bless you. <laughs> Good for you. I really want to commend you for that. This may not have been your idea, but here you are. And you're working through Ezra Nehemiah, blame Brody. Uh, and that's great because these really are important books of the Bible and they only rarely get the attention they deserve. I'm an Old Testament professor, so of course I'm going to say that. But the main reason these books are so important is that they provide us with testimony from the time of the return of the people of Israel to the land of Israel after the Babylonian exile. Now, if the whole idea of exile is a little fuzzy for you, that's okay. That's normal. It's pretty normal, I think, to be more familiar with the exodus than the exile, right? It's a better known part of the story. After all, every Easter we can watch Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, right? But there's no Hollywood blockbuster about Ezra about the exile, about the return from exile. But these chapters of the biblical story are crucial too. They make their own distinctive contribution to the message of the Bible. And certainly, I think, within the clear that all of the stories, all of the traditions of the Bible have been rethought and reframed by this experience of exile. And that's finally why Israel's exile was of such great importance, because it compelled Israel to revisit its most basic convictions. How? How could God have allowed a foreign nation to defeat us and destroy our homeland? Didn't God promise to keep us safe, to protect the temple, to ensure our well-being as a people? How could God allow the Babylonians to take us away to Babylon where we live like slaves to Babylonian masters. This experience of exile, in other words, raised religious questions. Questions about the nature of God and God's activity in the world. And these questions then became something like a prism through which the light from Israel's past had to pass in order for Israel to remain faithful. And in retrospect, 
some of the things that had earlier seemed of utmost importance now appeared to need further nuance. And some of the things that had seemed suspect and iffy now look to be somewhat orthodox, potentially. Israel's return is even less well-known, I think. Eventually, they went back. World events shifted, as they regularly do. And the Persians defeated the Babylonians. The Persians were every bit as intent on building a world empire. But they had a different style of empire building. As far as the Persians were concerned, local control was good. As long as the different parts of their empire would manage their affairs without generating some sort of revolt, and especially as long as people kept paying their taxes, because empires always care about taxes. Everything was hunky-dory as far as the Persians were concerned. So Cyrus, who's the new Persian ruler, he permitted the Israelites, the Jews, to go home. And actually, not everybody left. It's not so well known, but there was a Jewish community in Babylon right through the end of the 20th century. It wasn't until the political challenges, unrest of the Gulf Wars, and through the kind of steady attrition of the Jewish community through natural death and emigration that the, committee, the, the community disappeared. Uh, at last count, the figures are hard to come by, there were still a handful of old Jews in Babylon, but it's just about gone at this point. So for centuries, there was a community. And that's why this group that did return, that took up Cyrus's invitation to go home and took up the challenges of returning, was such a small group. Not everybody was sent into exile. People were left in the land. And then not everybody went back. So we're talking about a really small group of people. And when they come back to Jerusalem, they find the city still in ruins, the temple is still destroyed, they are struggling, as you've been hearing about, week after week. There are real challenges, trying to reconstitute this community, rebuild the temple, and then there are threats, because there are people in the area who are not happy about what is going on in Jerusalem. So, this fledgling community is trying to shore up the city's defenses. Much of Ezra and Nehemiah can be summarized as the struggle for a temple and the struggle for a wall. They were successful in that they did build, rebuild a temple and a wall. And that temple stood until it was eventually destroyed again by the Romans. So from this time of Ezra and Nehemiah, call it 516, 515 BC, 
to AD 70, when the Romans destroy it, this temple stood. It's called the Second Temple. This was the spiritual center of Judaism. This was the temple that Jesus knew. Now, the presenting issue in Ezra 9 seems to be intermarriage. The beginning of this chapter, which we didn't read, tells how the community's leaders come to Ezra and inform him that some people are intermarrying with what the text calls peoples of the lands. And Ezra's pretty unhappy about this, and so he works up a real humdinger of a prayer, which we did read fills the rest of the chapter. And in this prayer, he comes down pretty hard on intermarriage. Verse 12, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity. Verse 14, shall we break your commandments again, O God? and intermarry with the peoples while they practice abominations. Good biblical word, abominations. Now, from our modern perspective, this sort of view sounds overly rigid at best, and at worst, disturbingly intolerant. But what we need to remember is that marriage back then wasn't what marriage is now, a mutually agreed upon partnership by two people in love. Marriage was more about families, community identity, and yes, religion. What worries Ezra is that his community's very existence is so tentative, so endangered. He feels like they need every advantage, every protection that might give them greater security if they are going to survive. At this point in history, intermarriage threatens to overwhelm their tiny startup with competing commitments and resources. And this funny word, abominations, is actually a reference to the other gods that were worshipped by the peoples of the lands. It's a kind of euphemism, but that's what it means. It's specifically about other gods, because you see, mixed marriages would have been multi-faith marriages as well. And I want to suggest, I think very much against the grain of what is usually said about mixed marriage in Ezra and Nehemiah, which is a big theme, is that I don't think intermarriage was really at the heart of the problem. It was only the presenting issue there was, in fact, no long-standing prohibition against it. Jeremiah actually told the exiles to do just the opposite. In Jeremiah 29, there's an account of a letter that he wrote to the exilic community in Babylon. And he says, take wives 
and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray on its behalf. He doesn't actually say to intermarry with the populace, but in context, that seems to be the case. Now it's possible, this is the standard interpretation, that Jeremiah and Ezra just saw things differently, had different points of view on the topic. But a better explanation for their divergent counsel, I think, has to do with Israel's situation. In Babylon, Israel was very well aware of how it was different. The Babylonians wouldn't let them forget it. So to survive and flourish, Israel needed to engage Babylon and Babylonian culture constructively rather than staying in their own little ethnic cultural enclave. But once back in Jerusalem, the situation has totally changed. The threat to Israel's future now lies in forgetting its own traditions and assimilating to the traditions and practices of the groups around them. So what's at stake here, I think, is not so much marriage, but peoplehood. Who are we? And how do we maintain a sense of identity, especially within the wider culture in which we find ourselves? Now, in the initial complaint of the officials, they refer to the community of Israel as the holy seed. I love that image of the community, the holy seed. I think that's a great image for you all to think about since you're the Oak Church, the Holy See. And in his prayer, Ezra refers to Israel three times as a remnant. Ezra see is facing two massive related challenges. One is the ongoing need to strengthen the community internally through attention to its own history, culture, and practices. The other is how best to respond to the external, sometimes aggressive, actions of the peoples of the lands, and yes, the Persians. The Persians may have, committed, have permitted Israel to return, but do not be fooled. <laughs> They're still very much in control. And it is a striking, sobering moment in Ezra's prayer when he acknowledges this fact to God. We are still slaves, he says in his prayer. Yet God has not forsaken us in our slavery. Now think about that and, and the context in which that's being said. Israel has returned from Babylon. They have been liberated and free. They are back in their own homeland, finally. And Ezra stands up and says to God, 
and we are still slaves. In other words, being back in the land has not fixed a kind of fundamental problem. All of Israel's hopes and dreams have not yet been fulfilled, although they're back in the land. And so Ezra has a difficult dilemma to bring before God. What is the best way to organize this community in light of our present challenges? I like to say to students, I'm so glad that the Old Testament is just about a time in the past and has no relevance for what we think about today and our needs today. It's just constantly amazing to me how the Old Testament leaps the gap and all of a sudden talks about things that seem so incredibly pertinent to our particular situation and challenges. How do we organize our community today in light of our present challenges? Now, Ezra believes that Israel's situation calls for tighter communal boundaries, and that's why he is opposing intermarriage. And along these lines, one biblical scholar has suggested that we might actually imagine Ezra as something like an Amish elder, someone who believes that in order to live out the gospel, it is necessary to have more separation between the community and the wider culture, to separate it more from the outside world. It's a nice image to my mind because it helps us, I think, imagine Ezra somewhat more sympathetically. Every minister, every church lives with the tension between two good things. One is the need for the church to maintain its own identity, traditions and practices, to care for its own members and very often to manage its own property. The other is the need for the church to extend itself outside of its own walls, to evangelize, to seek out the lost and to learn from others, including non-Christian others, in the very act of engaging them. This tension takes many forms. For instance, think about a church endowment. Is that a good thing, a faithful thing, to have one, to not have one? What's prudent? To keep it, only spend the interest or a portion of the interest, or to get rid of it? Give it all to the poor. Tough, tough choices, tough decisions. Should we be about saving souls or social justice? How do we balance the priestly and prophetic dimensions of our faith? Ezra does not give us an answer to this question. What Ezra gives us is an example of what it means to struggle with this question faithfully. Another scholar has said, 
that we shouldn't think of people in the Bible as models of morality, but rather as mirrors of identity. I like that. I think that gets something very right. The point is not simply to imitate what people in the Bible do, but rather to use their challenges and struggles to help us navigate our own. In Ezra's day, the community of the faithful needed a wall. It needed greater cohesion, higher commitment, more separation from wider society, less assimilation. Just a few decades previously for Jeremiah, the need had been different. So what Ezra 9 offers is not a one-time fits-all plan, but a reminder that good decisions for our community crucially rely on an accurate and discerning appraisal of the moment in which we live. How do we strike the right kind of balance between maintaining our church and extending our church? Sometimes churches get so involved in social ministries that they neglect the pastoral work of leading people to Christ and discipling their own members. Other churches are so focused on the internal life of the church, its activities and expenses, they have no vision for anything outside the walls of the church and its membership roster. And either way, we get stuck and unable to adjust to new challenges. Ezra is often treated as a crotchety old guy who wasn't very socially progressive. I prefer to think about Ezra as a bold and decisive leader who is willing to implement unpopular change for the good of his community. It makes sense to me that in some situations, the church may need to have a sharper awareness of its distinctiveness vis-a-vis -vis the wider culture. Today, with so much changing all the time, Maybe there's a sense in which both stances need to operate simultaneously in the end. I think we see this in the New Testament. On the one hand, we've got a verse like 1 Peter 2.9, which describes Christians so powerfully as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of the one who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Well-known verse. Here, what we find is priestly difference. Christians are to be their own nation. They are not of this world. On the other hand, to pick almost at random, John 3.16 For God so loved the world, not, notice, for God so loved the church. Or for God so loved Christians. Ever think about that? For God so loved the world. 
And if God loved the world, shouldn't we? So here we have prophetic outreach. Christians are to love the world, serve their neighbors. They are in the world. Jesus called disciples to form a group, to live with him, to eat with him, to travel with him, to suffer with him. Jesus went to tax collectors and sinners, people on the outskirts of society, people who didn't fit in the church of their day, forming disciples, ministering to those outside the community. Both are needed, both are possible. Finally, both must be done. But, and here's the witness of Ezra 9, I think, they will need to be done with different emphases at different times because society regularly shifts and the church will find itself in a new situation. This, I think, is the fundamental challenge about which we read in these books of Ezra and Nehemiah, especially here in Ezra 9. This is a challenge that continues to require discernment and wisdom from us all. It is so easy, I feel it almost every day right now, it is so easy to become fatigued by all of the changes that come at us. But our faith, our faith in Christ compels us to stay alert, to watch, to keep assessing the moment, and to question the wall in our head.